Volume Four, Chapter Eight of Celestina. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Marie Nielsen, Vancouver, B.C. Celestina by Charlotte Turner Smith. Volume Four, Chapter Eight. Willoughby, with every sensation that could render such a journey unpleasant, proceeded to Paris, where he learned that his uncle impatiently waited for him. Had he gone immediately to him, he must have crushed at once all the expectations his appearance raved, and the shock must have been too great and too cruel. He determined at first, therefore, to write to Lady Castlenorth, yet after some reflection doubted whether it would be not better to give the letter he had received to miss fitzhaman and leave it to her to find the means of dismissing him without his being compelled to assign the true reason it was still possible that the charges against her might be unfounded or exaggerated it is possible that were there neither he might rescue her from the abyss to which she seemed to be devoting herself but from the pride and violence of her temper and from the imperious spirit which had never never yet borne to be told of an error he not only felt great uneasiness from the idea of the scene that was before him but doubted whether the person for whose sake he was willing to encounter it would not baffle all his endeavours to rescue her from evil or conceal her errors by clamour and resentment after some deliberation however as it was necessary to fix on something he wrote a short note to miss fitzhaman desiring she would favour him with a few moments conversation and entreated her for reasons which he would then explain to her not to inform lord or lady castlenorth of his arrival at paris till after he had seen her this note he sent by farnham to justina to be delivered to her mistress and received in a short time an answer that she should be alone that evening at ten o'clock and that justina should conduct him to her in her own dressing-room he found her sitting alone and under the appearance of receiving him with pleasure there was he thought a lurking apprehension of the occasion of this mysterious visit he felt himself extremely distressed how to open such a conversation but the consciousness of rectitude and some degree of indignant resentment immediately restored that calmness and resolution which on his first entrance he feared he might fail of commanding he began by apologizing for the liberty he had taken in thus soliciting an interview with her before he saw the other parts of the family but i am persuaded madame continued he advancing towards her with the letter open in his hand that whatever foundation there may be before the assertion which this letter contains it will be less uneasy to you to read it yourself than to have any appeal made on it to lord and lady castlenorth she took the letter with an air of mingled astonishment and indignation but willoughby saw it tremble in her hand a letter sir in which mention is made of me i am really quite at loss to know what there can be in it that i should in your opinion wish to have it concealed it is not long madame said willoughby fixing his eyes on her face and if you will have the goodness to read it oh certainly sir she ran her eyes over it as he attentively watched her countenance he saw pride struggling to conquer fear and shame and with some degree of success for having read it she paused a moment and then assuming an air of haughty resentment she threw the letter on the table that was between her and willoughby and said contemptuously 
I know not whether most to despise, the author of such a letter or the man who, if indeed he is not included in both descriptions, can poorly make it a pretense for insulting a person who has already been too much his victim. Pardon me, madame, said Willoughby, for interrupting you, but I must take leave to say that I am included in neither. A moment's reflection will convince you that I am incapable of the latter, and that the former being my object, I should not have chosen this method of shrewing this extraordinary billet to you, nor thus put it in your power to detect the author, without any hazard to yourself of having his charges believed. Miss Fitzhaman, I will be very ingenious with you. The person here alluded to is Captain Kavanagh. I know it. I know that the partiality, whether real or affected, with which you have appeared to favor me has been superseded by his more eminent merit, and though I am very willing to relinquish all prospect of an honor of which I am unworthy, I cannot feel much satisfaction in reflecting on the idea you seem to have entertained of my faculty or blindness, nor indeed can I, without regret, see you likely to say rather sir interrupted miss fitzhaman say rather that you rejoice in having found or made an excuse to break through the promises you have given from which however sir you would have been released without degrading yourself by this poor and unmanly artifice the daughter of lord castlenoth need not surely solicit the hand of any man Pride and anger now choked her utterance, and Willoughby, taking advantage of her want of words, again seized the opportunity to speak. He took her hand, which she would have snatched from him, but he continued to detain it, while, in the gentlest accents of friendly remonstrance, he said, "'Come, come, my dear cousin, if I am not your lover, at least, I can never be your enemy. For heaven's sake, be not your own. Confide in me, and believe that I will rather take the blame and inconvenience of our separation on myself than suffer you to incur either with your father. You cannot suppose, I trust you do not even wish, I should proceed farther in forming the alliance that brought me hither knowing what i know and what do you know sir and from whom have you obtained this knowledge from sources which render it impossible that i should be mistaken captain kavanagh he was proceeding but either from the tone in which he spoke or some other circumstance which that at that moment struck her she was suddenly impressed with a fear that he had been calling Kavanagh himself to an account, who, as it happened, had not that day dined with them. This idea threw her instantly off guard. She turned pale, and asked in an altered and tremendous tone what he meant by those sources of information. Willoughby saw immediately what she believed, and the truth of the information he had received from Justina was evident beyond a doubt. Her fears for her own reputation, or of the anger of her father, she could conquer, but the moment she apprehended that the life of Kavanagh either had been or might be hazarded, her fortitude failed her. It was now the moment to pursue the truth, which Willoughby, by soothing her, while he kept the idea of her lover's danger in view, at length, with great difficulty, obtained by her half-indignant, half-contrite avowal that Kavanagh had been a too successful candidate for her heart, and that her father and her mother's eager wishes, together with some other motives, which Willoughby discerned through the confusion and agitation with which she attempted to palliate or conceal them, had prompted her to effect 
for him a passion she had not felt since she had been in the habits of listening to Kavanagh. Willoughby looked back with terror to the danger he had escaped, and with infinite pity. Mingled with less gentle emotions, cast his eyes again on his cousin. He found her so deeply entangled by the art of Kavanagh, that to save her from him was no longer in his power, but it was possible perhaps to take upon himself the anger and indignation of Lord and Lady Castlenorth, and give her time to arrange her own plans, by immediately withdrawing in silence, though how any comfortable arrangement could be made for her with a man who was understood to be already married, he knew not nor how Lady Castlenorth would bear so cruel a blow, as the presence thus given to her daughter by a man whom she certainly had intended as successor to her present husband, whenever his infirmities should release her. When the first tumult of these passions, which fear, shame, and love had excited in the bosom of Miss Fitzhaman, subsided, by the kind and considerate arguments of Willoughby, she became able to talk with some degree of calmness on the subject, and he found that from the last renewal of their acquaintance with Captain Cavanagh, this design had been certainly entertained by Lady Castlenorth, but that on his part no other advantage had been taken of her extreme partiality towards him than to obtain by her means, money to enable him to prosecute a divorce from his wife, a young woman whom he had married some years before for the sake of some fortune, and a great deal of beauty which she then possessed. Having in two or three years dissipated the former, he left her to make what advantage she could of the latter, and had never troubled himself about her since till his reception in the family of Lord Castlenorth opened to him prospects of carrying off the rich heiress, and making him desirous of obtaining a dissolution of his marriage, for which his wife's ill-conduct, though entirely owing to his desertion of her, gave him a very good pretense. Much of this Willoughby learned from various little circumstances which escaped Miss Fitzhaman in this long conversation, for her representation of him was that at the most amiable and unfortunate of men married early in life to a woman insensible of his merit, and now rendered unhappy by a passion for another object, whom he had long seen on the point of being given to a rival, who saw her with very different eyes. Willoughby could not, without astonishment, observe the blind infatuation of a woman, possessed of rather a good understanding, but he found that the art of Kavanagh, to the success of which his very handsome figure had undoubtedly contributed, had so completely attained the government of Miss Fitzhaman's mind, that she no longer saw but with his eyes, and that while, to prevent any suspicion on the part of her mother, she had been suffered to affect a degree of affection for Willoughby, which had long since ceased. Kavanagh trusted to his reluctance to delay a marriage, which it was easy to see he dreaded, and hoped that the divorce would be obtained before the reluctance would be con conquered. He found, however, that Willoughby suddenly agreed to hasten it, and then it was that, in his conference with her, after the rest of the family were in bed, he urged her to find delays, and to procrastinate, herself, a period, to the arrival of which Willoughby no longer seemed adverse. Her tears, and the alarm in which Justina had observed her, were the effects of the earnestness and putiosity with which Kavanagh now pressed the necessity of her doing this, and the alternative he sometimes offered her 
of declaring to willoughby himself the footing upon which he was with her her father's illness fortunately for her intervened and now kavanagh was every hour in hopes that he should be set free from his matrimonial engagements and possess himself of the prize so long the object of his ambition and the end of all his designs miss fitzhaman and willoughby now were to discuss the means by which with the least prejudice to her their intended union could then be broken off the lady though she did not ingeniously own it had many reasons for accepting unconditionally her cousin's generous offer to take the whole burden of their displeasure upon himself she knew hot only the extravagant and furious passions which any suspicion of its real cause would excite in her mother but she was aware of the increasing fondness of her father for his nephew and apprehended that if he appeared the injured and forsaken person that fondest might urge him to make him amends by giving him a part of the great sums and estates that were in his own power and this rich as she would have been she had not any disposition to promote after some debate then in which way willoughby should execute himself and his rejection on account of their falsehood of some method which miss fitzhaman proposed he at length determined to write to lady castlenorth stating simply that he had changed his mind and found it impossible to fulfil his engagements and leave it to her to break it to lord as she thought proper for he imagined any letter from himself might be still a severe shock unless he could assign better reasons than any it was possible for him to offer this point being settled miss fitzhaman retired to recover herself from the effects of the scene she had just passed through and to study her part in those that were to come willoughby returned unseen by all but justina to his hotel where he composed a short note to the purport they had agreed upon and early the next morning he sent out on horseback for lyons where whence he intended to proceed along the coast of the mediterranean to the pyrenees and to pass some weeks among those mountains which he had never yet seen the recent and extraordinary events that had befallen him gave his mind sufficient subject for contemplation during the first part of his journey it was now very certain that he was for ever released and that by means which left him nothing to reproach himself with from his engagements with miss fitzhaman and of course from that promise to his mother in consequence of which those engagements were made one great objection then to his union with celestina was then removed and never did her image more tenderly occupy his thoughts than at this moment but alas it was no longer cherished with delight the mystery that clouded her birth and which he despaired of ever removing empoisoned the pleasure with which he would have thought of her and with yet greater bitterness he adverted to the probability there was that she was now the wife of another very certain that he should now never find the happiness of which her loss has deprived him the lesser evils evils from which a few years before he would have shrunk with dismay seemed to have lost their effect it was also impossible for him without injustice to others and uneasiness through himself to keep such a place as elvenstone in the present shattered state of his fortune and resolving to disembarrass himself from the necessity of returning to england for some years he wrote from lyons to cathcart giving him directions to put the estate to sale and at the same time informed the banker 
in whose hands Lord Castlenorth had led money for the discharge of all his encumbrances, that he should not avail himself of it, but that it must be replaced to his uncle's account. Having thus loosened almost every tie that connected him with England, from which he did not wish even to hear, left the information of Celestina's marriage should reach him, and his utmost hope was to obtain, by change of place, so much tranquillity of mind as to allow him to feel some satisfaction in the variety of the scenes it offered. He journeyed from Lyons to Avignon, and then proceeded along the coast, by Bazirs and Miripois, into Rousselon, interested by the grandeur and beauty of these remains of Roman antiquity, which he saw in his way, still more charmed by the sublime views which, in this romantic line of country, everywhere offered themselves to his sight, and hearing, and but hearing, at a distance the tumults with which a noble struggle for freedom at this time, the summer of 1789, agitated the capital, and many of the great towns of France, till, among the wild and stupendous scenes which he at length reached, even this faint murmur died away. In one of the cottages scattered at the foot of Mont-Louis, he found a young mountaineer, acquainted with all the passes of the Pyrenees. He was there only for a few days, on his way back from Perpignan to his home in the Valley de Doron, and on Willoughby's proposing to him, he most willingly undertook to be his guide through the mountains. Willoughby had left his horses at Perigan, and his present equipage consisted only of Farnham, carrying a light portmanteau and a sort of haversack for provisions, which he took himself strapped over his shoulders. On the morning of his departure from the foot of Mont-Louis, he travelled towards the southeast, always ascending, and was soon in the very heart of the Pyrenees in scenes which had hardly ever been traversed but by the shepherds and goat-herds, and where no vestiges of man were seen, but here and there a solitary cabin, serving them for shelter, during a few weeks of summer, built of the rough branches of pine or chestnut, covered with turf and lined with moss. In these huts, which were now some of them inhabited, Willoughby found a wild but simple and benevolent people, always ready to supply him with such food as their flocks, among these desert regions afforded to themselves, and in one of them on a temporary bed made of the skins of their sheep, whom accident had destroyed after a deep sigh, which was drawn from him by the memory of Celestina, and with which every day concluded he obtained a few hours of refreshing sleep and with the dawn of the next day pursued his journey towards the summit of the mountain amid these paths that wound among the almost perpendicular points of the cliffs he often sat down surveying with awe and admiration the stupendous works of the divine architect before whose simplest creation the labored productions of the most intelligent of his creatures sink into insignificance huge masses of gray marble or a dark granite frowned above his head whose crevices afforded a scanty subsistence to lichens and moss campion while the desolate bareness of other parts added to that threatening aspect with which they seemed to hang over the wandering traveller and to bid him to fear left even the light steps of the izzard the chamois of the pyrenees or the wild goats who now and then appeared suspended amid the craggy fissures should insuate should insuate them from the mountain itself 
and bury him beneath their thundering ruins dashing down amongst the immense piles of stone the cataracts formed by the melting of the snows and the ice of the glaciers in the bosom of the mountains fell roaring into dark and abyss-like chasms whither the eye feared to follow them yet frequently amidst the wildest horrors of these great objects appeared some little green recess shaded by immense pines cedars or mountain ash and the short turf beneath them appeared spangled with the smodilla and fringed pink or blushing with the scented wreaths of the daphne cenorium while through the cracks and hollows of the surrounding wall of rock were filtered small and clear streams they crept away among the tufts of juniper rosemary and the rhododendron of the alps that clothed the less abrupt declivity where uninterrupted by intervening crags the mountain shelving gradually to its base opened a bosom more smiling and fertile though which the collected waters no longer foaming from their fall found their way towards the mediterranean sea their banks feathered with woods of cork trees chestnuts and evergreen oaks while the eye carried beyond them was lost in the wide and luxurious plains of languedoc never did such a spot offer itself to the eyes of willoughby but the figure of celestina was instantly present to his imagination he saw her sitting by him enjoying the beautiful and romantic scenery he heard her in those accents which had long such power to enchant him expatiate on its charms with all that exquisite taste and feeling he knew her possessed of and remembering a charming description given by rousseau in his julie of a spot of this sort among the rocks of malary il sembla qui le lieu desert du être la salle du amants en chapelle au versement de la nature for a moment or two he indulged such a delicious reverie till sudden recollection of the truth cruelly destroyed it celestina was not never could be his never could share with him the simple and sublime delight offered by the superb spectacle of nature with all her great works about her whether he was among the rude mountains that she has raised as a barrier to divide two powerful nations or gratified with the more mild beauties of his native country never could she share in his satisfaction or heighten his enjoyment but her hours and her talents were all destined to make the happiness of montague thurgood and that idea he started up and hardly conscious of the rugged precipices beneath him renewed his wandering researches and sought by activity of body to chase the fearful phantoms of lost happiness that haunted his mind he had now passed three weeks among the pyrenees and had traversed several glaciers and descended on the spanish side and looked over part of caledonia again he took his way to their summits again crossed deep valleys of ice and wandered over regions where winter reigns in all its rigour though under a sky of the deepest blue illuminated by the ardent sun of july a sky so clear that not even a fleeting summer cloud for a moment diversifies its radiance one of the tallest of these stupendous points is la pie de Medi de bagnes which seems to be the sovereign of the inferior points around it from its tall head he descended to beignet and there meaning to close his researches he rested some days and then by another route returned towards the country of Rossillon, 
from whence he had first begun his journey but when he arrived there he had nothing to do but to form some scheme of farther progress and therefore pleased as he was with the variety and novelty offered him by this long chain of immense mountains he determined to lengthen his stay amongst them his guide who had by this time acquired an affection for him delighted to carry him to every place that he thought might offer either novelty or amusement and he now conversed with the smuggler who conveyed at the extremest peril prohibited articles of commerce between france and spain now joined the solitary hunter of izard or smaller chamois and now shared the most dangerous toils of these who sought to bear the wild boar or the wolf among the deep woods that clothed the sides of the mountains it was an excursion with an hunter of the izard that farnham having been left behind at the cabin of a shepherd where willoughby intended to pass the night and gaston his guide were by an accident separated and he found himself alone on one of the most savage spots of the whole chain above him arose a point covered by eternal snow beyond which a glacier spread its desolate and frozen surface for some miles surrounding every way by sharp and barren rocks one side fed by this magazine of ice and snow a broad and darkening torrent through itself falling with deafening noise into a rocky cauldron so far below that the eye could not fathom it a dark and apparently inaccessible wood of firs was on the other side where no tree or plant could find its abode that was not equally able to endure the severity of those cold winds that passing over these immense magazines of ice carry with them frost and desolation even into the rich vineyards and luxurious pastures of Gascony and Lunduc, and there assume the name of the Biswind. Willoughby had lingered so long among these mountains that it was now the second week of August. The evenings were, of course, somewhat shortening, and the sun was visible only by reflection from the snowy point above him when he found himself lost on a place where he knew not his way to any human habitation or was likely to hear the sound of a human voice little accustomed however to fear of any kind he sat himself down on a piece of broken rock to consider if by any of those remarks which gaston had taught him to make he could find his way before nightfall to rejoin his servant and his guide or to find at least some place of shelter these observations however were impeded by the clouds that seemed to arise from the extensive plains below him and to gather round the base of the mountains these increased every moment and at a length surrounded him like waves so that he no longer distinguished the objects beneath him while immense volumes of white vapour were poured like a sea between him and the neighbouring precipices he heard louder than ever but he no longer saw the torrent that threw itself down within a few yards of him and had apprehension ever been under any circumstances troublesome to him he now might well have feared that lost in this chaos of mist he should at least remain all night where he was and perhaps never regain his companions at all life however had so few charms for him at this moment that his indifference for it added to his natural courage when only himself was in question made him perfectly calm and collected though the thick clouds of mist 
continued to gather and darken round the spot where he was now, now compelled to remain for a few moments the sighing of the wind which bore this floating vapour the increased hollow murmurs of the rushing waters of the cataract were interrupted only by the screaming vulture and the deep hoarse raven who seemed by their cries as they filled above the great abyss of the mist to be warning of their companions of some approaching danger thunder was in fact gathered in the bosom of these clouds and willoughby as he sat on his solitary rock heard it muttering at his feet and after some tremendous bursts which seemed to shake the mountains to their foundations accompanied by blue and vivid lightning a violent wind rose and dispersing the foggy clouds drove them with the storm generated in their bosom to the country beneath the last rays of the departed sun were now reflected from the summits of snow the air became perfectly serene and willoughby saw distinctly every object around him he observed at some distance to the left a cross in an elevated situation but far below the extremest point of the cliffs and he recollected that the day before gaston had shrewd him that cross and had told him that near to it was the residence of a shepherd and that not far from it a convent near the foot of the mountain towards this therefore he now endeavoured to find his way and by the help of a stick with an iron fixed at the end of it and by his own activity he at length passed difficulties that to many people would have seemed insurmountable and attended only by a terrier which had followed him from england and which had been the faithful companion of all his wanderings he reached the pointed rock where the cross was erected it was now however so late that he began to despair of finding the hut where gaston had told him was situated something lower down the moon indeed was rising in majestic beauty behind him but her light he feared would hardly be sufficient to guide him among the woods and crags with which he was surrounded to an object perhaps entirely concealed within them and with which he was wholly unacquainted he he sat down however till she could afford him more benefit and to consider what he should do when amidst the silence of the night the sound of a human voice in slow cadence accompanied by some musical instrument was borne on the faint breeze that arose from the low lands he listened it was not the illusion of fancy as he had for a moment supposed and he involuntarily exclaimed oh it came o'er mine ear like the sweet south that breathes upon a bank of violence stealing and giving odour his dog too gave evident signs of hearing something unusual ran from his master to the brink of the precipice then returned jumping towards him and seemed rejoiced that they were once more within reach of a human habitation his sagacity assisted his master to follow the sound and descending the mountain by an entangled and almost overgrown sheep path that led from one pointed rock to another he at length entered one of those woods of larch pine and chestnut that fill many of the hollow bosoms of the pyrenes and though the trees rendered it entirely dark the music which still continued at short intervals to float in the air led him on till in a small glade overshadowed by rocks clothed with bushwood he saw a small cabin or rather cottage where he had no doubt of finding an asylum for the night his terrier now ran gaily before him and was presently saluted by the loud barking of those dogs which guard the pyrene flocks 
but on meeting the animals courteously saluted each other and the shepherd's dog seemed glad to shrew the strangers to his master the moon though not yet risen above the trees which on every side shaded the rocks surrounding the solitary glen yet afforded general light enough for willoughby to perceive a group of peasants assembled round the door of the cottage superior in size to any of the cabins of the shepherds which he had yet visited as he approached the founds which had guided him towards it ceased and a man advanced to meet him whose air and manner was very different from the native mountaineers whom he had been accustomed to see though his dress was nearly the same willoughby accosted him in french told him he was a stranger who had lost his guide and desired to be permitted to remain in his cottage till morning enabled him to find his companions the man to whom he spoke hardly allowed him to finish his sentence before in language unalterated with the patios which he had spoken in that country and in a coarse mixture of spanish and french he expressed the utmost solicitude for his accommodation and leading him to the door of the cottage presented him to his wife to an old man her father and to several young people whom his music had assembled round the cabin and who the inhabitants of a little group of cottages dispersed at short intervals among the woods on this part of the valley de Luzon. Each individual of this simple party was eager to show civility and attention to the stranger. Louison, said he, who appeared to be the master of the house, and who had met Willoughby, Louison, go and prepare what our cottage affords, to refresh this gentleman, who may well have occasion for it, after such fatigue as he has gone through willoughby owned he was almost exhausted and in a moment milk bread and such other simple food as they themselves lived upon were before him with the same hospitable simplicity louison went again at her husband's request to prepare him a bed which one of the younger brothers of his host relinquished to him saying he could find lodging that night at a neighboring cottage le laurier which he found was the name of his host then pressed him to retire to his bed but willoughby refreshed by what he had eaten found his curiosity so strongly excited by the manners and language of this man that it became more powerful than fatigue and he could not help expressing a wish to know how a man who possessed such musical talents and whose conversation was certainly not of that of a mountaineer should be found inhabiting a sequestered nook in the bosom of the pyrenees i inhabit it sir replied le laurier because i was born in it but it is true that i have also seen a great deal of other parts of the world and that it is not yet a month since i quitted the capital of france to return hither after a very long absence long indeed said his wife who had now rejoined them alas so long and she sighed deeply that i never expected sir to have seen him again let me hear said willoughby not only what you have to relate of yourself but what is now passing at Paris, which you say you have so lately left? I have been so long wandering among these mountains that I am wholly ignorant of the consequences of that fermentation which was evident among there among all ranks of men when I passed through it. And I was in the midst of it all, sir, replied the laurier, for my master, Chevalier de Belgrade, was among the prisoners who were released from the castle of mont st michel but her history is too long for this evening he gave however a brief detail to willoughby of what had passed at paris the preceding july and then gaily turning the conversation said well sir but 
here i am after all this returned to my cottage in the pyrenees and here is louison and my family we are all happy together and what is yet better my dear master is restored to his home here below us and where is his home oh sir the chateau of rochemart where his family has lived since the beginning of the world i believe it is just down the valley have you seen it to-morrow please heaven you shall and you shall see my master who is now indeed the count of bellegarde for his father and brother are dead you shall see him sir and how a man enjoys liberty that has been a prisoner so many years not indeed for that he is so happy as some people would be because of the misfortunes in the beginning of his life which always hang upon his mind but now i hope in time he will get over them for my part i think it folly to lament what we cannot help or regret what cannot be recalled i wish the chevalier was of my disposition tis a very fortunate one at least for yourself replied willoughby and has undoubtedly helped you gaily through the world no sir not gaily but tolerably amidst the severest of those misfortunes which i shared with the chevalier i had always a persuasion that i should revisit my cottage and my louison ah thank heaven your persuasion was just one my friend replied his wife and now we may not part with the melancholy impressions on our minds let us have a little more music the laurier then began to play on the instrument willoughby had before heard and which was something between a lute and a spanish guitar he touched it with uncommon taste and sang a simple rustic air the cadence was solemn and pathetic but at every close the female part of his auditory joined their voices in unison willoughby had now time to observe the groups before him by the clear light of the moon which cast a mild and unclouded radiance around them the scene was simple and affecting le laurier a fine manly figure sat on a feet of turf by the side of his door his wife a very handsome woman stood leaning against the side of it her head inclined towards him a girl twelve or thirteen years old who was his eldest daughter leaned on the turf and looked up towards him with a fort of innocent and affectionate admiration while a boy of seven the youngest of his children had fallen asleep as he sat at her feet and rested his head on her lap two or three young peasants were behind listening to the music and gazing at the stranger and in a chair before the door the venerable father of the family sat contemplating the felicity so lately restored to them all by the return of le laurier with the mild resignation of reposing age a thousand fragrant smells floated in the air after the rain and the lightest wind whispered among the woods by which they were every way surrounded not a sound interrupted the plaintive pastoral air which the performer now began to play while his wife and daughter alternately sung a stanza it was kind of romance in paltoy but willoughby understood it to be the complaint of a mountain shepherd whose mistress had forsaken him for a richer establishment there was nothing new in it but it was the language of nature and brought forcibly to the mind of willoughby his misfortunes the soothing melancholy which every object around him seemed to breathe the light of the moon trembling amongst the waving branches of which celestina had so often remarked the effect when they were wandering together the simple cadence of rustic music even the happiness which he saw on the countenances of his host and his family combined to rise in his mind and regret and languor 
never could he now hope to enjoy such a scene with celestina never was he likely to taste the delight of being restored to all he loved oh no celestina was the wife of another and the world had no happiness for him as he indulged these melancholy thoughts he sat almost motionless and appeared to be attending to the music of the laurier but on a sudden they quite overcame him and striking his hands together he started up and walked suddenly away from the little assembly his host immediately ceased to play and following him inquired with unaffected solicitude if he was ill willoughby immediately recovering himself thanked him for his kindness and assured him that his emotion was occasioned merely by the song he had heard which had brought some unpleasing recollections to his mind the man instead of attempting to console him by commonplace speeches said he would then leave him a moment and hoped he would soon rejoin them and allow them to wish him a good night willoughby walked on a little farther toward the wood he looked up at the moon even at this moment he said perhaps the eyes of celestina are fixed on thee mild and beautiful planet those fine and expressive eyes which have seen fill with tears of admiration and delight as they have contemplated the beauty of the universe and the wisdom of its creator ah celestina our hearts were made for each other but yours yours is perhaps changed and to me is lost as well as your person he dared not trust himself with the train of thought but turning walked slowly back towards the cottage door where only le laurier and his loraison now waited to shrew him to bed as he walked silently along the bells of a convent below seemed to be calling its inhabitants to their evening prayers and from a higher part of the mountain which arose very suddenly beyond the woods a small bell answered and was re-echoed among the rocks on his reaching the laurier he inquired what these sounds meant the bells below said he are those of the convent of st benoit about half a mile below us and the smaller one is that of father anthony a hermit who inhabits one of the rocks above he has lived there many years and where is the castle of rock mark inquired willoughby it is almost close to the convent replied le laurier and if you wish to see them both i will wait upon you thither to-morrow willoughby now repeated his acknowledgments for the courtesy he had received and retired to his rustic bed where fatigue in despite of the depression of spirits was his last reverie brought upon him gave him up to repose and he for a while enjoyed that sweet forgetfulness of human care without which the wretched would lose the power of enduring their wretchedness and the happy that of enjoying their good fortune end of volume four chapter eight recording by linda marie nielsen vancouver bc